Hey guys, welcome to Mintcast, the official podcast of Mint Press News. I'm your host, Benar Mohawish, founder and editor-in-chief of Mint Press News. Today we have a really important show, possibly one of the most important episodes we've had on this podcast so far, with a very special guest, Whitney Webb. She's going to join us as we dive deep into the many conflict of interests at play in managing the coronavirus pandemic, its response, cure, and everything in between. Today we have state and corrupt, corruption-ridden companies and billionaires that are capitalizing on the public's fear to rake in record profits, change laws, and uproot entire societies uh, while building the groundwork for a dystopian authoritarian police state straight out of George Orwell's 1984. And of course, the mainstream corporate media is not even talking about it. We are talking today about Jared Kushner, Bill Gates, vaccine companies tied to the opioid epidemic, martial law, the death of our civil liberties, expanded mass surveillance states, and, you know, I could really go on, but today our guest, Whitney Webb, is much better suited in breaking these down for us. You're probably familiar with Whitney from her extraordinary work at Mint Press as a staff writer and investigative reporter for the past few years. She's now a contributor and is working on her first book about Jeffrey Epstein and his ties to the deep state. Whitney, thank you so much for joining me today. Hey, it's great to be here. Um, Now, you recently published a series of reports on the last American vagabond titled Engineering Contagion, a Marathrax Coronavirus and the Rise of the Biotech Industrial Complex. You've gone deeper than any other journalist has that I've seen in exposing the agenda of the national security state, Silicon Valley tech giants, billionaires, big pharma, you name it basically preparing for over a decade uh, for a flu-like pandemic like coronavirus and how they'll be capitalizing on the crisis to fulfill an Orwellian uh, vision. Now, there's obviously a lot to unpack here. It was like a three-part series, I believe, so far, um, but I'd like to start from the very beginning. Um, In your series, you explain for decades the U.S. biodefense programs and pandemic preparedness efforts are now rearing its ugly head as pandemic panic distracts the American and global public from the fundamentally untrustworthy and frankly dangerous individuals who are in control of the U.S. government and corporate America's response. And that was a quote from your um, series. Who exactly are these individuals and institutions that you are referring to and what exactly is their agenda? All right. So, um, The pandemic preparedness efforts that I'm referring to are really these simulations that took place last year. Um, There's actually another one that I learned about after my series started, but um, I haven't reported on that one yet. But the ones that I focus on, one is called Crimson Contagion, um, which um, is a series of simulations. It wasn't just one simulation. It was four simulations that took place over the course of um, January of last year through August, um, involved 19 different U.S. federal agencies, 12 states, and um, I think over 30 uh, private companies, corporations, um, and they were all simulating a pandemic influenza outbreak that originated in China. And the person that led that exercise and, and basically, um, you know, outlined it in, a, in its scope and all of that is a man named Robert Cadlick, who is uh, the current HHS Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response. Um, and then the other um, simulation that I'll be talking about is in the series is Event 201, which is out of all of these simulations has definitely gotten the most attention. Um, and I'm specifically focusing on one of the main groups that hosted that exercise, which is the John Hopkins Center for Health Security. 
Um, and the director of that center is a man named Thomas Inglesby, who was essentially the moderator at event 201. And the reason why I point um, out Inglesby and, and Cadlick as being significant is because both of these men and the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security as an organization, um, they were fundamentally very involved in this very disturbing simulation that took place in June 2001 that is called Dark Winter. And Dark Winter is very. Um, disconcerting in my opinion, because it, um, as I said earlier, it took place in June, 2001, but it eerily predicted the entire narrative that would follow um, 9-11 and the 2001 anthrax attacks and participants in Dark Winter had foreknowledge uh, of those attacks, um, you know, in the time between the September 11th attacks and the first anthrax attacks taking place. They were, um, some of them were telling people in the Bush administration to take Cipro, um, the antibiotic that prevents anthrax infection. Um, and were, you know, basically seeding the media with this narrative that there was going to be an anthrax attack. And then a lot of these same individuals, including Cadillac and Inglesby, were involved in the FBI investigation or in uh, efforts to uh, basically cover up what was really going on with the anthrax investigation. Because if people remember back, there was a major effort to blame the anthrax attacks on a foreign source, specifically Saddam Hussein working hand in glove with Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan, which is the very narrative put forth in Dark Winter that says that those two, um, that Saddam Hussein and Osama bin Laden would work together to do, um, you know, a bioterrorist attack in the United States. That was the narrative that was put out about these anthrax attacks by these very people. But then it turned out to actually have originated from a U.S. military bioweapons lab. And the FBI investigation, um, which was called the Amerithrax case, was just... Um, an enormous cover-up. And, you know, um, people say, oh, well, maybe it may not have been a cover-up, but I disagree with that um, on so many counts. But I would, you know, direct people to the most obvious point of evidence for that being the fact that the lead investigator for the FBI on that case ended up filing a whistleblower lawsuit and leaving the bureau because he said it was a cover-up and that he was obstructed from investigating the case by his higher-ups. But there's a lot more, um, a lot more there. And so this that, you know, these people's involvement in Dark Winter, and now they were running these simulations last year um, for either a coronavirus pandemic in the case of Event 201 or pandemic influenza originating from China in the, in the case of Crimson Contagion. Um, a lot of the things they planned out in terms of solution and response, we have seen so much of it come to fruition as this coronavirus um, case takes place. And a lot of other people that were involved in Dark Winter are also involved in different aspects of what's going on with coronavirus right now, whether that's advising um, Bill Gates um, and his foundation, or whether that, that's being on the board of directors of some of these companies that are set to profit from the coronavirus uh, pandemic uh, panic, really, um, specifically in the vaccine market. So there's clearly a lot of, you know, uh, conflict of interests uh, taking place right now in terms yeah. of you know, management, <laughs> response. And uh, tying it to the 9-11 response, um, who are some of, you know, you mentioned Bill Gates, you mentioned some of the foundations, what are, who are, who else is involved? And talk to me about some of the uh, hawkish think tanks that are involved. Um, do you mean involved currently with coronavirus or uh, with the anthrax case? With both, because you mentioned that they were kind of tied together. Right. Well, the people that did Crimson Contagion and Event 201 had ties to this dark winter scenario. So Cadlick, uh, Robert Cadlick, who's now the Assistant, Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response um, in Dark Winter, 
Um, the title of the Dark Winter Exercise actually comes from a quote that he said in one of these like fake fictional news clips they use in the exercise um, where he's, you know, appears um, on that and says it will be a very dark winter for America um, and, and things like that. So he was involved in the creation um, of the script for that exercise. And, and right. And then later on, immediately after 9-11, he became a home, homeland security advisor um, to Dick Cheney uh, in the realm of bioterror and bioweapons. And what's interesting is that right after 9-11, the co-authors of Dark Winter, including Thomas Inglesby, who was the moderator of Event 201, personally briefed uh, Dick Cheney on the Dark Winter exercise. Um, and it, apparently Dick Cheney was very interested in a lot of things that transpired. And at this point, Dick Cheney had already been told by another Dark Winter participant, a man named Jerome Hauer, who at the time of 9-11 was many things, but also um, a national security advisor to the Department of Health, uh, Department of Health and Human Services, uh, had already told um, Cheney's office and other Bush administration officials to take Cipro to prevent anthrax infection. Um, so there is a lot of... Um, very odd things that went on in, in that just in that window of time between 9-11 um, and the first anthrax um, attacks being known to the public, which was around um, October 4th, 2001. So also in this this period of time, you had people like Jerome Hauer, who I just mentioned, uh, going on uh, mainstream media saying that there was going to be an anthrax attack by the same people responsible for 9-11. Um, so Jerome Howard was doing this, but so were members of Project for a New American Century, including former um, director of the CIA, James Woolsey, who was also a participant in Dark Winter. We're going around saying that there was going to be a biological weapons attack. You had Richard Pearl, you had Donald Kagan, all of these PNAC neoconservatives saying that there was going to be a biological weapons attack by the same people that did 9-11. And even though I mentioned that it was actually a U.S. military source, the anthrax that was used in the attacks, if you actually look at pictures of the texts on these anthrax letters that were sent out during the attacks, they say 9-11, 2001, Death to America, death to Israel, Allah is great. There was a deliberate effort to frame um, the, the uh, perpetrator of the anthrax attacks as being tied to the 9-11 attacks and being um, a Muslim, right? And that actually turned out not to be the case. Um, but there was, you know, this effort that was preceded in this exercise to paint it as such. And there was, you know, this, this foreknowledge of these people saying, uh, you know, telling, seeding this idea in the American public consciousness while also privately taking, you know, Cipro to prevent anthrax for themselves, but not warning postal workers, for example, who ended up handling right. these letters. Some of them ended up dying. They didn't warn any of those people, right? But they were taking it for themselves. Um, and there's a lot more red flags about the anthrax um, about the anthrax case and specifically what the FBI did in the early days of the investigation. Um, it's just, you know, very disconcerting to see that sort of narrative here. And speaking of the anthrax attacks as well, it's worth pointing out that currently we're seeing this effort with coronavirus to, to say that you know, the current pandemic is caused by a Chinese bioweapon. And the origin of that claim comes from a lot of the same people that tried to say that the anthrax attacks um, were the work of Saddam Hussein. Um, and, uh, and I say this because um, in early January, in early January of this year, one of the first stories um, to circulate this claim that it originated, the coronavirus originated from um, a bioweapons lab in China, came from a man that used to work for Israeli military intelligence named Danny Shoham. And he had previously said, um, actually written um, at least one or two academic papers arguing that the anthrax attacks were committed by Iraq um, and Saddam Hussein. 
Um, he is uh, arguably the first person besides Radio Free Asia, which is U.S. state funded. But but Shoham was quoted in the Washington Examiner uh, earlier this year saying that um, coronavirus is a Chinese bioweapon. And of course, you have a lot of people that used to be on Project for a New American Century, which I just mentioned earlier and is sort of seeding this narrative about the anthrax attacks before they took place. Um, you know, they have a lot of those members are now on this new think tank called uh, a Committee on the Present Danger China that is also really, um, you know, from heavily boosting this the same narrative that people like Danny Shoham have been bringing up. And people have really been buying into it, seemingly forgetting that a lot of these same people are, are, are the guys that told us that, uh, you know, Saddam Hussein was responsible for 9-11 and basically pushed us into a big war. And now they're doing this with China, which is, you know, a, a totally different ballgame than than Iraq in terms of war on, on a huge scale. I mean, China has nuclear weapons. They have the largest army in terms of the number of servicemen in, in the world. I mean, this is no joke. But the fact that people are so many people are buying this hook, line and sinker, including people that, you know, greatly criticize PNAC and the Bush administration for lying us into Iraq. They seem to be really willing to swallow this narrative now, even though it's coming from the same people. Well, that is a lot to process, I think, for most people, because, um, you know, the connections you made between the anthrax attacks and um, the cover up that took place uh, afterwards, um, you know, is new, still still new information to a lot of people. Um, so how, you know, in terms of a, a lot of this, you know, China bioweapons, um, you know, allegations that are taking place that are coming from the same people, we're not hearing um, any sort of watchdog style criticism um, from mainstream media like CNN and the New York, New York Times. In fact, they are spreading so much fear uh, in terms of, um, you know, the coronavirus and how we should be responding and social distancing, which, you know, to a certain point, you know, we can understand because I think, you know, you and I, Whitney, we're, we're taking coronavirus seriously. You can still be in that category to take it seriously, but then also, uh, you know, be concerned about, you know, impending economic devastation. You could still be worried about the expansion of an authoritarian government, pol you know, policies um, under the guise of coronavirus. The, you can be all of those things, but the media is only pushing one narrative. So how is the media uh, working to play out this, you know, China is the new Russia narrative um, and fear mongering uh, while uh, the government is uh, building the framework of something bigger and greater that should really fear us or scare us. Well, right. So what's interesting is that in these pandemic simulations, whether it's dark winter or the ones that took place uh, last year, they place a lot of emphasis on the media and actually dark winter had um, four participants that were from the media, including Judith Miller, who later went on to heavily promote um, Saddam Hussein is responsible for anthrax and help lie us into Iraq. Um, and so last year um, at event 201, they talked about the need to control the narrative um, and, you know, basically um, clamp down on or, or increase online censorship of what they call our, you know, unverified claims or, you know, claims that go against the official narrative. And, um, you know, uh, this is important in terms of amplifying these Chinese bioweapons claims as well, because when you look at what happened with Iraq, right, the reporting specifically regarding anthrax in Iraq was was just atrocious and literally just made up of all these, um, you know, basically made up intelligence and um, just very poor reporting. If you were, uh, as an example, there was this ABC News report, for example, um, after the anthrax attacks, not long after where they said that the anthrax used in the attacks contained bentonite and that bentonite was used in the um, 
in Iraq's uh, previous bioweapons program that the U.S. sponsored, by the way, in the 1980s. Um, and that bentonite being in the uh, in the anthrax samples meant that Iraq must have been responsible. But it later came out that none of the anthrax tested ever had any bentonite at all. It was completely made up. And that ABC News report cited what they said three well-placed sources, which later became four well-placed sources. And those sources were never revealed, and that story was never redacted, even though it was proven entirely false. Now we're seeing a lot of um, news reports start to emerge that are very similar. For example, the Washington Post and Fox News recently reported that the coronavirus did emerge from a Wuhan lab. Um, and they are, you know, using very similar language to suggest that's the case. Um, for example, Fox News said uh, that their their reason for making that very bold claim was because um, they had been informed by sources that had been briefed about China's early actions um, as the coronavirus, um, you know, first began to spread around Wuhan. And, you know, that language is uh, people should really scrutinize that because it doesn't even say government officials. It doesn't say who did the briefing, if these sources were even briefed by government or intelligence. It could have been people, members of a think tank briefing members of another think tank or, you know, anything like that. I mean, it's just very vague. And that's the only evidence they're citing. But they're citing, you know, this lack of evidence, but making these big headlines and then it's being amplified by mainstream media in, you know, in a very similar way to what we've seen um, in the past with the lead up to Iraq or, you know, other, um, you know, other policies um, or, you know, regime change efforts that the U.S. wants to promote. I mean, mass media in the U.S. so frequently amplifies this and it's very rare that mainstream media in the U.S. actually opposes U.S. regime change efforts or U.S. wars. Um, I think. Um, I think Alan uh, McLeod actually did um, an article about how there were a few, if any, U uh, U.S. newspapers and Western newspapers that actually opposed or were even neutral on um, U.S. efforts to uh, promote regime change in Venezuela, right? So, I mean, this is something that's been going on for a very long time, but we're seeing it now in the age of coronavirus where people are, are you know, in a state of panic and there's a state of chaos, uh, very similar to what happened in 9-11, which ended up leading to a war that killed millions of people and is still, you know, maiming Iraqi children um, and, you know, killed a lot of uh, U.S. soldiers, and um, it was just a disaster by all accounts. Right. So, um, you know, these same people and the same media you know, machine is basically putting us on a very similar path. And I think people really need to start being wary of it and start calling it out. Well, and the media is also, you know, pushing, you know, the cure. Right. They're pushing the idea that we need to take a vaccine to cure um, the coronavirus. And so, you know, speaking of media, Talk to me about the vaccine companies who are set to supposedly cure us from COVID-19 and why we should all be concerned. Okay, so there's several vaccine candidates right now. So there's several companies that are um, aiming to basically get the first government approval for the vaccine. Um, but because there's going to be such widespread demand and there's talks of a mandatory vaccination program, it's very possible that there's more than one vaccine that ends up being used just because of the amount um, of vaccine that can be produced in a certain amount of time by a certain company may not be enough to meet immediate demand, for example. So it's basically a race towards government approval. It's not really a race towards a cure. And I say this because they've suspended a lot of normal testing procedures, clinical trials, things like that. For example, they skipped animal testing on, on some of these vaccines have gone straight to human testing. Um, and, you know, that can cause major 
safety problems potentially because we're not going to know even uh, a lot of the sh- you know medium term, arguably some of the short term side effects and obviously not long term side effects that these um, vaccines may have. It's worth pointing out that two of the vaccine candidates, um, the one being um, developed by Inovio Pharmaceuticals and the one being developed by Moderna Inc. Both of these companies are strategic partners of DARPA, by the way. Um, They are both developing vaccines that um, are a category of vaccine that has never been approved for human use ever uh, in the United States. And this is because, you know, most vaccines that we know of today, they use uh, damaged parts of the virus. Some uh, even have a live virus in them, right? But these vaccines are different because they don't have either of those. What they have are foreign genetic material. Uh, Moderna's is a messenger RNA vaccine. Inovio's is a DNA vaccine. These are both uh, vaccine technologies that were actually developed by the U.S. military arm DARPA that I just mentioned a second ago. Um, And they have never been approved for human use. Um, It's very um, disconcerting that this type of vaccine technology that's never been approved for use in humans before is basically being rushed through um, skipping animal trials and and all of that stuff, especially when their attempts at making vaccine candidates in the past, like Zika, um, for example, failed spectacularly. But, you know, because of the panic and fear and the demand for a vaccine, it's being pushed through. But um, another, oh, sorry. No, no, go ahead. (laughs) Okay, so um, another company that's doing this, too, is Johnson & Johnson. Uh, they've gotten a lot of U.S. government money from um, HHS's BARDA, um, which is one of these relics of the Bush-era biodefense program. They've gotten a lot of money to develop their vaccine specifically. Johnson & Johnson, in addition to participating in last year's Event 201, also has a very scandalous history of putting asbestos and baby powder and knowing about it and lying about it and still selling it anyway. Um, even though we know of the horrible health effects um, of asbestos and putting it in a baby product nonetheless, right? Um, So these are the people that we're supposed to trust to make the vaccine. And another company that I point out in part two of my series in this engineering contagion series is one called Emergent Biosolutions. Jerome Hauer, who I mentioned a little bit ago in connection with a dark winter and the anthrax attacks, he's been on the board of directors of this company for a very long time. They um, have long had a very controversial monopoly on the anthrax vaccine that I point out in connection with the anthrax attacks, how um, they were about to lose their contract for the anthrax vaccine with the Pentagon in August 2001. And of course, the anthrax attacks that followed soon after that reversed all of that completely because of the panic and the chaos, similar to what we're seeing now. Um, they also cornered the market for the only smallpox, va- smallpox vaccine in the United States, which is... Um, been a focus of post 9-11 biodefense preparedness, which is basically the mass stockpiling of vaccines, as opposed to, you know, storing up a protective uh, equipment for health workers and, you know, developing surge capacity for hospitals. All of that was ignored in lieu of stockpiling vaccines, which, of course, has been a huge boon for a lot of these pharmaceutical companies. But anyway, this other company um, that I'm talking about right now, Emergent Biosolutions, um, which used to be called Bioport, by the way, they have also recently cornered the market for um, the only um, opioid overdose um, antagonist, which basically reverses. it. So, you know, if someone's suffering from an opioid overdose, you give them this nasal spray called Narcan, and it helps revive them. uh, and, And keeps them from dying from the overdose, right? So this company has a monopoly on that. And they have prevented generic competitors from coming in to lower the price. Um, they, Their CEO has talked about um, U.S. colleges and high schools being untapped markets for Narcan, basically saying, you know, um, we, you know, 
not looking at it as a, the public, huge public health crisis it is, but as, you know, a, an economic boon to the company, the fact that there's so many overdoses among young people in the U.S., um, it, it's honestly just very sick. So anyway, they are now um, on on the road to, um, well, they're backing two uh, vaccine candidates for, for COVID-19, and they're also backing two experimental plasma blood treatments. Um, and one of those is being fast-tracked by HHS by Robert Cadlick, who I mentioned, by the way, has ties with Jerome Howard going back to Dark Winter and all of this. And uh, Robert Cadlick now is the guy that approves uh, which uh, companies, which vaccine companies get the millions of dollars from the um, from that department's BARDA program. And so he's been giving it to companies like Johnson & Johnson, Emergent Biosolutions, all of these companies that has ties to this biodefense uh, industrial complex that Cadillac has been a part of for a very long time, including people that he you know, was involved uh, involved with at the Dark Winter exercise. And you know what's so interesting about everything that you mentioned? You know, if we were to post these random facts which are facts, by the way, um, on social media, we will get tagged, flagged, whatever, um, for conspiracy, fake news. Um, you know, it'll hit the Facebook <laughs> uh, fake news um, meter. But everything you mentioned is literally on these uh, big pharmaceuticals websites. It, these are things that have been reported on in mainstream media as well. Yet it's so taboo to talk about vaccines, so taboo to talk about the ingredients. I mean, I follow um, another uh, individual who covers the ingredients on vaccines. Literally, all she does is just post the ingredients on vaccines and she covers the um, autoimmune response to these ingredients. And she has continuously received, she's a researcher, by the way, with a PhD on this subject. She continuously receives messages um, to remove these posts and so um, I appreciate you reporting on this and talking about this, um, but the media won't necessarily talk about the connections uh, being made and, and how important this is, because this is really should raise many red flags for many people, um, yet it's so taboo to talk about vaccines. But speaking of vaccines, what the media will um, give attention to is Bill Gates's infamous TED Talk from a few years ago called The Next Outbreak, which has literally been replayed like a million times on mainstream media. He's made media appearances as an expert on the topic of the response, the cure. He's not even a doctor. He's a billionaire um, who's, you know, rose to the top through philanthropy. Um, but there's also been a huge backlash from the public on social media. Um, he was trending a couple of weeks ago. People don't want, you know, mass public doesn't seem to trust uh, Bill Gates. What has his role been in shaping government response? Um, and is the public outrage justified, Whitney? Um, well, I think it's kind of naive for people that that trust Bill Gates to think that someone who was one of the most ruthless CEOs in the tech world all of a sudden became super concerned about public health and, and charity as soon as he opened up a you know, his charitable foundation. <laughs> um, I think that's honestly kind of um, odd. But, um, you know, I haven't written extensively um, on Gates specifically, but he is uh, the one of the major funders of the World Health Organization. Um, he is a major funder of numerous other organizations, um, including the, the Gavi Vaccine Alliance, which brings together, you know, pharmaceutical companies and these charitable foundations like his and, and some other funding sources. He also backs the... Um, Coalition for um, Epidemic Innovation, um, it, or it, it, sorry, I can't remember the full name, but it's CEPI, um, which has been giving a lot of money to these um, pharmaceutical companies to develop vaccines for um, coronavirus right now, but previously other diseases like Marburg virus and Ebola. 
um, and, and things of that nature. Um, he has been kicked out of, of countries like India, his foundation has because of the close ties between his foundation and, um, you know, pharmaceutical companies that they've considered that to be a conflict of interest, that he has conflicts of interest in promoting vaccines um, as the cornerstone of, you know, global health policy, as opposed to, um, you know, other, you know, alternatives um, that wouldn't necessarily benefit, you know, big farm pharmaceutical companies so directly, right? Um, and, um, you know, this is worth pointing out because there are some cases that are very concerning, I would argue, in, in current, you know, like World Health Organization vaccine policy, for example, the use of the polio vaccine. In the U.S., there's a type of polio vaccine that is used, but it's not the same that is used in the developing world. The one that is used in the developing world, including in Chile, where I live and in Africa and a lot of other places, is the oral polio vaccine, which contains live polio virus. The one in the U.S. does not contain live polio virus. OK, so um, this vaccine that's being used and promoted by by who, you know, in, in developing countries um, has actually at this point um, ended up causing so many polio cases that now cases that are caused by this uh, oral uh, live polio vaccine um, have are causing more cases of polio than polio that is occur occurring naturally in the wild. So it's obviously like not helping at this point. But, you know, these pharmaceutical companies have incentives uh, they they want to keep selling their product because they they continuously produce these vaccines and they stockpile them. And if there is a policy put in place because a vaccine is considered damaging or or found to have adverse effects, um, oftentimes instead of um, you know just saying all right we have to move to something else, they seek to market those stockpiles to developing countries um, or other countries that have not restricted that vaccine despite knowing that adverse effects have been detected, right? And so um, this polio vaccine is one example of that. There are several other examples of that. Um, and of course, the Gates Foundation has also been, you know, sort of embroiled in controversy as well um, about um, with the tetanus vaccine in 2014. Um, a couple health associations, including um, one that was associated with the Catholic Church and another one that's associated like a, a, one of the major associations of doctors in Kenya, they sent samples of a tetanus vaccine to a lab. Uh, to be analyzed, and they found that it had presence of this hormone that's necessary for pregnancy in women there, which had previously been contained in anti-fertility vaccines that were sponsored by the Rockefeller Foundation, another charitable foundation, and the World Health Organization um, in the past, um, in I think the mid-90s. And there was a huge cover-up of this, and Kenya's um, in, uh, government was actually getting uh, economic incentives um, from the World Health Organization, which, by the way, as I mentioned, is largely funded by, by Bill Gates. And um, there was a study that was uh, funded and, and produced um, by another organization that was founded and funded by Gates Foundation to basically um, claim that, you know, um, the presence of this uh, hormone in there uh, was not bad. But actually, I mean, th there are also studies that show that when you... Um, this vaccine had previously been produced that had this hormone in it to prevent pregnancy because you have uh, this hormone in there and you have the adjuvant. So you basically end up developing antibodies to that hormone. So if a woman gets pregnant and naturally starts to produce that hormone, it, it becomes attacked and pregnancy is no longer viable. Right. Um, so basically the cover of that uh, cover up of that, that whole situation in Kenya, it was funded by, um, 
two organizations that are direct that their main two you know uh, in both cases their some of their main fund most of their funding comes from the Bill Gates Foundation and this hasn't been talked about in mainstream media it's been dismissed like you said as a conspiracy theory um, actually one of the heads of the one of these Kenyan uh, doctor associations ended up being uh, targeted. Um, by Kenya's government, um, which had, you know, conflicts of interest, as I said, they had economic incentives to keep this vaccination program going um, and things like that. And mainstream media was not very critical of what was going on and it was actually um, undercovered in alternative media as well. This was several years ago. Um, and, you know, honestly, it hasn't really been given enough scrutiny, um, you, you know, and, and also another thing that I've brought up a couple of times, I've talked about the Jeffrey Epstein scandal a lot. Um, over the past several years, Bill Gates had very close ties with Jeffrey Epstein. They were largely focused around science. Um, there's been a huge cover-up of their ties. They go back to the 1990s, um, but the New York Times, at least, officially claims they only go back to 2011. But regardless, even mainstream media admits that the backup executor on Epstein's will was the former top science advisor to the Bill Gates Foundation, a guy named Boris Nikolic, um, and that Bill Gates and Epstein had numerous meetings and um you know, Epstein or Gates was giving a bunch of money for Epstein for him to use for quote unquote charitable purposes. Uh, mainstream media has also admitted that Epstein's main scientific interest was eugenics, right? So the fact that, you know, there's all this stuff in, in the back with Epstein or, or with Bill Gates and conflict of interest with pharmaceutical um the pharmaceutical industry. There's also this other side of, you know, why was he hanging out with someone like Jeffrey Epstein who was interested in eugenics? And actually, if you go back and you look at, you know, the history of the eugenics movement in the United States, um, which goes back to actually the 19th century, um, it was very prominent up until World War II, but um, a lot of that, that same ideology persisted after World War II in different ways. It was really heavily promoted by um, the Rockefeller brothers during that period of time. Um, and I would encourage people to look at that because even though it hasn't been so public, there's been sort of this same uh, very toxic ideology that has guided some, you know, members of the billionaire class for a long time. And, you know, I think Bill Gates deserves scrutiny in that regard because some of his past statements where he says things um, a couple years ago saying like, my greatest worry is that there's too many young people in Africa, for example, um, and people need to have smaller families and he has three kids, you know? I mean, it just seems kind of um, odd, some of his rhetoric and people have been pointing this out and, um, now we're seeing mainstream media sort of run interference for Bill Gates saying, oh, no, he's being attacked by online mobs um, and things like that, you know, um, when. Day, right? <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> and didn't he also say that he wouldn't vaccinate his kids? Um, so I had thought that because I had been sent that by a friend of mine and there was a report that was claiming that his um, doctor or the, the doctor that saw his kids when they were really young, that Gates had declined to vaccinate them while they were young, but did not know if they had been vaccinated uh, when they were older children or adults or whatever. Um, but I wasn't able to independently verify that from that report. So um, I'm, you know, treating so it as unconfirmed. Yeah, no, we don't know. So I went on, um, you know, Tim Dillon's show um, a, a week or two or a couple days ago and um, mentioned that. And it turned out that couldn't be confirmed. So um, I sort of had to issue a correction on that. So I got to be um, so we really need to be cognizant that there's a lot of claims that are going around that are un that seem likely but are unconfirmed. Um, but there are definite facts and definite red flags and gates uh, past of philanthropy. Right. Um, and uh, his ties to pharmaceutical companies and, and how, you know, he's used his foundation and his billions of dollars 
to basically, uh, you know, have a stranglehold grip on global health policy, not just in the U.S. or at the U.N. through the World Health Organization, but in countries around the world. Well, you know, what really concerns me is, you know, as you mentioned, how the vaccines can be different in the United States versus in third world countries. Today, if we look at countries like Yemen or Somalia, who who are living under the bootstrap of U.S. imperialism, um, and NATO warfare, you know, these foreign countries are, you know, these nations are pillaging uh, Yemen and Somalia for their resources. They have people, uh, you know, it's a man-made crisis. It's a, the famine there is all man-made. Everything is man-made. It, these areas are rife with disease. It's because of U.S. imperialism in Yemen is a very good example of the uh, of an illegal U.S. Saudi-backed uh, blockade that's preventing food and medicine from entering the country. And now these countries could face not only a famine pandemic or, you know, epidemic, uh, but now they could be facing a coronavirus uh, pandemic in their countries in addition to what they're already facing. And if a vaccine goes there, uh, you know, it, it raises questions as to will this vaccine be used as a weapon of war to make things worse for these people? Because I don't think that the United States or Saudi Arabia wants to see the Yemeni people be healthy. They're literally the ones who are ensuring that they're starving. Um, right. Over 23 million people starving there because of U.S. imperialism. I mean, our politicians are okaying this policy. Um, they're not just there. There's no criticism of, of it, you know, with the exception of maybe like Rand Paul and like Bernie Sanders. But even they don't go as far to say that, you know, this entire policy is inhumane and we need to get all U.S. troops out and just end the blockade completely. And so that 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 really concerns me, um, you know, having covered Yemen and famine, you know, in the Horn of Africa. Um, You know, speaking of Bill Gates and, you know, just Dr. Fauci's recent statements about, you know, we may never be shaking hands ever again. I mean, (laughs) What benefit do these people have? What benefit does the establishment have in creating this, you know, I don't want to say the word, you know, the phrase new world order, but what benefit do they have in creating this order where people are not shaking hands, we're not interacting like we used to be? Um, I mean, is this really what we are expecting society to look like? And if so, what benefit does this have for these, for those in power? Well, I think this is about um, introducing what, you know, we've heard a couple of times the new normal, that this is all becoming new normal, new, the new normal. It's social engineering on a massive scale. I think this huge push towards social distancing um, has a couple different motives behind it. One is the introduction of AI-driven, contactless, uh, humanless technologies, uh, where people will be interacting more with machines face-to-face instead of people, which has been a longstanding agenda um, that I talked about in my most recent report that um, is uh, a big part of um, what Silicon Valley and the CIA and the Pentagon want to come about is the mass adoption of AI technologies. Uh, they were saying this w- at least, you know, over a year really uh, before the current pandemic um, took place, right? And I think another major factor is the fact they don't want protests anymore. Before coronavirus hit, there were numerous countries around the world that saw, you know, people-driven movements trying to overthrow governments. Um, And thanks to coronavirus, um, a lot of those protests are, you know, they're pretty much gone now because of social distancing, lockdowns, quarantine orders, things of that nature, right? And what's interesting is a lot of the first countries to do lockdowns um, did so uh, even before, in Chile's case, 
uh, where I live, they announced a lockdown before there was even a single death from coronavirus. And I would argue that's because since last October, there have been massive protests against Chile's uh, current president. And by introducing that order, those protests that were starting up again in early March um, ended up stopping, right? So it wasn't just Chile that did that. Also, France was one of the first countries to do a lockdown that ended up getting the yellow vest movement off the streets. Uh, Spain followed France shortly thereafter. Uh, That stopped um, a lot of the protests um, of the Catalonia separatists. Um, And then, you know, you had... um, um, some other cases as as well beyond those countries. But I think it's kind of interesting that a lot of these countries that were the first to do lockdowns also had some of these popular protest movements. And what's interesting too, is that a lot of the so-called response or relief measures for coronavirus uh, that were, um, that have been put in place under any other circumstance where there was not, you know, this type of lockdown scenario would have generated uh, major protests. For example, this so-called relief bill that ended up giving $4 trillion to Wall Street. That's four times bigger than the 2008 Wall Street bailouts. And of course, after those bailouts, there were the Occupy Wall Street protests. There was a lot of anger towards Wall Street. Um, But now there's all these, you know, enforcement orders about social distancing and lockdown. Um, Some countries have tried to sort of, uh, or some people um, in countries with lockdown have tried to protest anyway, uh, despite social distancing. Recently in Israel, there were some protests against Netanyahu where the protesters um, stayed like six feet apart from each other um, and took to the streets anyway. It was really Um, interesting to see. mm -hmm. (laughs) Right. So, I mean, I think there are a couple ulterior motives, uh, uh, motives here. One is sort of to remake the economy in a way that a lot of these oligarchs have been planning for a long time because they we, we've been here hearing about for years so some of these uh you know billionaires like jeff bezos for one wanting to replace a lot of workers and amazon warehouses with robots things like that right so this sort of what's going on now with the economy has given them a lot of opportunity to do that and i think it's very interesting that we have you know um what i mentioned in my latest report this um this national security commission on artificial intelligence basically laying out the roadmap for how to basically force American society to adopt um, artificial intelligence technologies. And there's a lot of overlap between that commission um, and with Trump's new, um, what he's calling the great economic revival industry groups, um, which are basically a private sector task force. Um, There's one uh, one task force for each sector of the American economy that will be advising the White House on what to do. And you have people like the, you, you have some of the same people that are on that commission that laid out that roadmap on these task force, like Safra Katz of Oracle. Um, but you also have people that have promoted AI in the workforce, like Jeff Bezos. You also have Elon Musk on there. And a lot of Trump's top billionaire donors, like Sheldon Adelson, Bernard Marcus, you have Paul Singer. Um, it's basically the oligarch class that's deciding how to reopen up the economy and giving them unprecedented power and influence on how to do so, whereas the American public doesn't really have much of a say. And the last time oligarchs had a huge say over what happened um, to the economy in this way, we saw the mass outsourcing of U.S. industry uh, to China, for example. And that, of course, was done because uh, at the you know uh, it doesn't cost as much to pay uh, a worker in China as it does to pay a a worker in the United States doing the same task, right? So it was cheaper. But what's even cheaper than paying someone in China or Bangladesh or Vietnam or whatever um, is paying uh, a robot because you don't actually have to pay them. You just pay the upfront to you know install the AI system and, and the robots and all of this, and then you don't have to pay them ever again because they don't eat and they don't sleep. Um, and they don't have families and they don't pay rent, you know? Um, so to, to think that these billionaires 
that uh, some of whom have openly made plans for this, you know, now that they're on these task forces, what do you think they'll do as they, you know, help create uh, these government plans to reopen the economy? I really think we won't be ever returning to normal. And they keep using this phrase like this is a new normal. You have to get used to it um, so that, you know, people just uh, consent to it and accept it while at the same time preventing protests over people that uh, resist AI. In this document, this roadmap I talk about um, that basically came out last year, they talk about how uh, the American perception of AI is a major obstacle to the adoption um, of these AI-driven um, technologies because um, Americans distrust how it will affect their privacy. They distrust that it will cause um, a loss of jobs. And they say, in contrast, the Chinese government and the Chinese media paint, you know, um, artificial intelligence as a as a tool to ensure global leadership in the technology sector. And that's what the U.S. wants. The U.S. doesn't want. Um, the U.S. national security state and Silicon Valley, which are come together in this commission that wrote this roadmap, they are hugely they have huge concerns about China um, dominating artificial intelligence technologies. Um, and they say that if we don't adopt those technologies on a massive scale like China is doing, we will fall behind and we will no longer be setting, be able to set the rule book or the international norms or even export AI technology to other countries. And we will basically lose, uh, the U.S. will lose its you know, position of hegemony um, entirely to China um, over the next several years, which obviously for them, they consider to be a huge national security threat. Um, so it's just all very disturbing, honestly. But, um, but I think those are the but, factors. But $1,200 check to each individual will make us all set up, right? <laughs> yeah, I guess. Um, I, 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 you know, that's what they're assuming. And I think it's um, just very troubling because a lot of Americans can barely survive on that. I think Steve Mnuchin, the Secretary of Treasury, that participated, by the way, in this Crimson Contagion thing, by the way, the Secretary, uh, the, the Treasury Department was there. They developed you know, like a whole day on their last exercise just to finance responses during a major pandemic crisis last August, right? But anyway, you know, um, Mnuchin thinks Americans can survive on a $1,200 check for 10 weeks. I mean, that is just like That's not insane. grounded in reality for Nobody a lot of Americans. Survive. Yeah, no, I mean, you need at least like $3,000 for like one individual probably at right. least to pay for rent or a mortgage, groceries. I mean, groceries are so expensive now in America. Daycare costs if you have kids, if you're a single mom, if you have somebody dealing with mental health issues. I mean, it is insanely expensive to right. survive in this country. It's not like it used to be. Well, I think this is part of the strategy, too, is to not have people comfortable with the lockdown, like barely scraping by with, you know, this thousand two hundred dollar check for two uh, ten weeks, keep people uncomfortable um, and, and increasingly desperate to the point where they'll, they'll take whatever scraps the oligarchs or the government decides to throw at people. I think that, uh, you know, by and large seems to be kind of the strategy here to try and get Americans to accept, you know, uh, the what, you know, these oligarchs trying to revolutionize the economy in a way they normally wouldn't accept. You know, if they're, you know, in a desperate, desperate situation to stay in their houses and stay clothed and, and feed their families, people will accept things they normally wouldn't accept if they were comfortable and were able to maintain their regular standard of living. I just can't believe that we're having this conversation now because I know. You know everything just sounds so <laughs> futuristic, but in fact, it's actually happening right now um, right. in 2020. Um, so something that, you know, people aren't, you know, I, I've been following a lot of uh, people online and it's like you're either you're there people are on like two opposite sides of the spectrum it's like you they're taking social distancing very seriously they're taking coronavirus very seriously 
they are taking every word from Trump, the Trump administration, the WHO, everything so seriously. And they say openly, these people, um, that they don't care about their First Amendment rights. They don't care about their civil liberties. They don't care about the Constitution right now. Right now, we have to practice social distancing, and that is it. Then you have people on the other side who are like, this is all a hoax. Our civil liberties are being trampled on, you know, et cetera. So it's like the two opposite extremes. And how do we come in the middle to recognize that, sure, we can... We can take coronavirus seriously, um, but care about our civil liberties and constitution um, and look at, you know, and call out, you know, you know, you, you've, you very briefly mentioned, um, you know, Jared Kushner's plan for far reaching mass surveillance. I mean, I think this is one of the things that we should really talk about and kind of wrap up the conversation with is, you know, how do we found, find a middle ground while also bringing attention to this plan that's being led by Jared Kushner? Um, that will give us a mass surveillance system that will build the groundwork for an authoritarian state far greater and far worse than we have we ever expected from our government. At least most people would, would say that. That, you know, is like the 9-11 plan on steroids. I hope my question made sense. I know that was a lot. <laughs> yeah, well, well, there were a couple two parts to it. So um, for, first off, um, in terms of finding middle ground, I think this is why it is so important for independent media right now. Um, to do what they do, because I think uh, it's really up to us to show people on both extremes where middle ground can be found and how important it is right now to bridge, whether it's the two-party divide or the divide on people's opinion about what coronavirus is and how severe it is and all of that. Um, There are some points that I think people on, regardless of what side of those issues they fall on, can agree about. And the part, of, second part of your question you brought up, I think, is one of the ways uh, to show people that, which would be this Jared Kushner uh, coronavirus surveillance system, as well as um, some of the things that William Barr, the attorney general, um, the head of the Department of Justice, has been fielding as a way to respond to coronavirus. And I say this because the, um, the Jared Kushner promoted, promoted surveillance program as well as Bill Barr's um, recent call to get new emergency powers that that would involve the indefinite detention of Americans. Both of these policies were being directly promoted by the same people, though, um, in in the case of the surveillance system, it was actually Jared Kushner's wife, Ivanka Trump, that was promoting it last year. But last fall, both of these policies were being very heavily promoted, but not as a response to a global health crisis, but as a response to mass shootings in the United States. Okay, so the fact that we're supposed to believe that solutions that were being fielded as a response to mass shootings are going to be the same solutions that we need to respond to a pandemic. I mean, if you think about it, you step back and you think about it, that logically doesn't make a lot of sense how the solution to mass shootings is the same as the mass solution uh, uh, is the same as the is the same solution as as um, you know what we need to do to combat coronavirus or something like that. Right. It doesn't make logical sense. And I would argue this is because. What they are trying to do is that these solutions are things that the national security state um, that, you know, in these cases, Bill Barr and and Kushner and Ivanka are representing. These are solutions they've wanted to implement for a long time um, in the post 9-11 era, but have not been able to get um, enough consent among the American public for their imposition thus far. And so they have spent the past several um, months and years attempting to justify the imposition of these policies based on whatever Americans are most afraid of at the time. So last fall and last October, when a lot of this stuff was going live um, or being promoted, um, 
people were most afraid of mass shootings. And that was what was being, you know, hyped in the media, what we need to be afraid of. And now, of course, it's coronavirus. So they're basically tacking on whatever justification they can to justify this this type of solution. And of course, before mass shootings or before coronavirus, you know, it was terrorism, the war on terrorism. They're basically just shifting the book, the boogeyman, but the solution remains the constant. Right. And um, really quick, I want to talk about um uh, what the surveillance surveillance system um, entails and how it compares to the yes, one last year. So, okay. So um, basically what the Kushner promoted surveillance system wants to do, it's about, um, they say it's about contact tracing for coronavirus using uh, location data, data, as well as combining that with uh, Americans' private health data um, and data that's u- that's stored on consumer smartphones. And the system last year that was being promoted by Ivanka and, and some other people uh, called for the creation of a new government agency called HARPA and its flagship program was to be called Safe Home. And Safe Home um, was about using private healthcare data and private smartphone data and everything you've ever said on social media, combing through it and then using artificial intelligence to analyze and determine who may have mental health issues and then um, flag them for, you know, uh, mental health treatment or, um, you know, a, a range of responses. Okay. And at the same time, William Barr was promoting a pre-crime program that actually exists now uh, that is called the Disruption and Early Engagement Program. That was, um, he announced that last October as a way to respond to mass shootings. And it would be using the same system of digging through this, the same information, these same databases in order to identify, identify people that are quote unquote mobilizing towards violence and he said that what would be done with the people who were flagged in that program would be court-ordered mental health treatment, uh, indefinite house arrest, or indefinite detention, right? And so a lot of those same emergency powers is what Bill Barr just asked for um, a few weeks ago uh, under the guise of responding to coronavirus, right? So um, basically the same mass surveillance system that, you know, was HARPA and safe home and all of that is the one that Kushner is now seeking to build right now with companies that have direct ties to Google. Um, one of the main companies uh, that's set to build this is uh, their lead investor is Google Ventures, which is Google's cap- uh, venture capital arm. Um, and, you know, a couple of the other ones have direct tie are already U.S. military and intelligence contractors and, and things like that. So not really surprising to see those companies um, on there. But what is concerning is that there is already evidence in other countries that have implemented these, quote unquote, contact tracing um, applications is that they actually hinder the response to combating the pandemic. And so um, as an example, the first country to implement this type of surveillance um, was Israel, and it was managed, or it's still managed, by Shin Bet, which is, you know, Israel's domestic intelligence agency um, that um, is sort of like the FBI in the U.S. And um, not long after it was implemented, um, an association of Israeli doctors came forward and said, actually, this is hampering and hindering our ability to res- to respond to coronavirus because this app, the data it is collecting, does not help us at all. It is not the data we need. And instead of Shinbet saying, okay, well, we'll tweak the program so it can give you the data um, you need, they didn't change anything at all because the fact of the matter is this is something that benefits them not the coronavirus pandemic. And as I said earlier, this is something national security states in the U.S. and Israel and other countries that are similar 
you know, around the world that they want to implement to can help control their own populace. In Israel's case, these types of surveillance programs have long been used in the pal- in Palestine, but now they're being used in Israel at large. And maybe, you know, some Israeli citizens are surprised, but I mean, that's essentially what's happening. And we're going to see the same thing. Um, it attempts to implement the same thing here. But since we've already seen in countries that have used this app, that it's not actually helping the coronavirus response, it's still being promoted anyway. And I would argue that's because it's something that the government wants to do and it doesn't want to do it for public health reasons. And I think, you know, this is an example of a point that needs to be made to help people um, reach this middle ground and see that, you know, there are key policies that are being promoted that are not about the virus, that are about control. Um, And that, you know, people that are concerned about that take coronavirus seriously and people that don't, um, can agree on this point. Right. And I think that that <laughs> pretty much sums up everything that you've, you know, uh, talked about in this conversation is that it really is about control and not about actually helping uh, citizens in the coronavirus uh, response, which, you know, it's another reason why it's so important to turn to independent media um, because, you know, we're not just parroting the same lines from, you know, the national security state um, in promoting these things. We have to question. We have to ask why. We have to advocate for ourselves um, because sure as hell the mainstream media is not advocating for us. Um, they're taking uh, an extreme stance. And in fact, they have become and they are the propagandists for these entities. Um, so Whitney, thank you so much for joining us today. That was a lot of really, really great information. I learned so much from you. Um, I always learn so much when I read your articles and investigations. Um, so that's a wrap for today's Mintcast podcast. Um, this program is 100% listener supported. You can join the hundreds of financial sp- sponsors who make this show possible by becoming a member on our Patreon page. We'll see you next week. Thank you. <laughs>